about questions. Why do we ask questions? Well, the obvious answer is that we ask questions in order to gain information. This enables us to make relationships. Down at the coffee, you'll say, Hello, what is your name? Where are you from? It also enables us to explore the world in which we live. Basis for science. Why does the sun rise in the east and set in the west? However, this gift given by God went wrong when the devil in the form of a servant asked the first recorded question in human history. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3 verse 1. And this question sowed doubts in the minds of the woman and then the man about God's goodness. And the results were disastrous. Realising what they had done when they ate the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve, his wife, hid in the garden. Now the second recorded question in human history comes. And this one was asked by God himself of Adam. Where are you? Contrary to what some theologians are proposing today, God did not ask this question in order to gain information because Adam had caught him unawares and was hidden behind or in some particularly difficult tree and God didn't know where he was. Rather, God asked him the question in order to face him up to his disobedience. And in our series, we've been following this year on Sunday mornings in Mark's Gospel, following Jesus, there have been many occasions in which Jesus has been asked questions and also occasions on which Jesus has asked questions of people. And I commend it to you, it's a very profitable study. So if, you, if you like marking your Bible, go through the Bible and mark all the questions. It's very interesting. And today, we come to a series of questions which I've entitled, Questions and Answers, in Mark 12. We've got quite a long passage to look at, and it really will help to have a Bible in front of you. Now, if you haven't brought one, just look around. There are Bibles in the pews, and uh, you can just grab one, ask someone to pass one to you. Hope if you can regularly bring your own Bible with you. And it's page 1017 in the Church Bibles. Page 1017. And you will find here in this long section we're going to look at together you'll find there are four different sections each of which is prompted by a question uh, the first three are questions that are asked of Jesus the fourth one is a question that Jesus himself asked of his listeners and it's very profitable to look at them in turn and at the end of each one I want to leave you with a question that challenges you about what it's all about so let's first of all read the first section we'll read them in sections and then look at them together verse 13 then Later they, that is the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the word of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he, sat, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Here's a question asked by this delegation. 
sent by the Jewish council, these Pharisees and Herodians, I'll tell you who they are in a moment if you don't know, um, what sort of question is it? Despite the insincere flattery with which they begin by commending Jesus as a great teacher and a man who follows the truth and so on, as we read it, it's an attempt to catch him in his words. So let me suggest to you that this first question is a trick question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, the question of paying taxes to Caesar, to the Roman authorities, was a hot issue in Judea at this time, much like the poll tax was when Mrs. Thatcher first introduced it as an experiment in Scotland. In fact, there are close similarities, because the tax in question that they're talking about was a poll tax imposed upon every adult man and woman in Judea bit of history. After the death of Herod the Great, he divided his kingdom among three of his sons and they ruled different parts of Palestine and Israel as is today. The ruler who was given Judea was an absolute disaster. He was so bad and so corrupt that the Romans eventually stepped in and imposed direct rule on Judea, which was still in place when Jesus spoke these words. The first thing that the new governor did, who was appointed to Judea, was to take a census of the whole population. In fact, the word taxes in verse 14, the Greek word, is kensos, from which we get the word census. And he imposed this census to find out how many people were living there, all the adults, and then he imposed a tax on them, a poll tax. And that's the one they're talking about here. And the tax that you had to pay was one denarius, one silver coin. There are pictures of them on the screen if you're interested in what they actually look like. And for the Jews, paying taxes to Rome was bad enough, but what made it even worse was what was written on the coin. It had an image of the Roman Emperor, Tiberius, and around the coin it said, T. Caesar, my Latin pronunciation is not good, but nobody knows how Latin is pronounced, so let's not worry about it. It said, T. Caesar div org f Augustus, which is short for Tiberius Caesar divi Augustus filius Augustus. Now, for those who didn't do Latin at school, the few people here, um, this means Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. Now, you imagine a Jew reading that and seeing that. For the Jew to make an image of anyone was blasphemy, and especially someone who claimed to be divine. And even worse, on the reverse, on the other side of the coin, you can see there was a woman there holding a spear in her hand, probably was Livia, the wife of Tiberius, uh, of Augustus, and the mother of Tiberius. And she's holding a palm or olive branch in her left hand and the spear in the right hand, and underneath it said Pontifus, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. Now, you don't need any imagination to realise why a Jew didn't want to pay that kind of money and even have anything to do with it. In fact, soon after it was introduced, a man called Judas, who came from Galilee, led an armed insurrection against Rome because of this tax, which was ruthlessly suppressed. You can actually read about it in Acts 5, uh, and I don't have time to look at it, Gamaliel actually quotes this particular incident. Now, some 25 years on now, this was still a very explosive issue. So the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not, seemed to place Jesus in a no-win situation. If he answers yes, pay the poll tax, he would be accused of being a collaborator with Rome and a traitor to his own people. If he answers no, don't pay the poll tax, he could be accused of being an agitator against Rome, like Judas who came also from Galilee, like Jesus. 
very interesting that the two groups that asked the question held different views on this the Pharisees were a strict religious group who didn't believe in any cooperation with Rome whatsoever the Herodians were those around the court of King Herod who favoured a peaceful approach of collaboration with Rome and these two groups would normally be sworn enemies they wouldn't want to have anything to do with each other it's very strange and ironical that together they unite to try and catch Jesus out and Mark tells us in verse 15 if you look at it Jesus knew their hypocrisy that the question was not a genuine one but had a different purpose he says why are you trying to trap me the Greek word behind trap is the word used of an animal being trapped in a snare he says bring me a denarius one of these silver coins let me look at it now notice interestingly Jesus did not have one but his questioners did and were quite happy to use it that was part of their hypocrisy and Jesus then asked them this question he says well whose portrait is it whose inscription and they say well Caesar's and then Jesus gives this classic answer to their first question give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's now this is not a sort of claimed a kind of definitive statement about the relationship between God's rule and human authority between the church and state nor is he saying that these two had their own sphere of authority and that God had nothing to do with Caesar what he is saying is that Caesar's rule is under God's rule in the NIV application commentary David Gunn it's a very good commentary if you want to give commentary on Mark he says this give to Caesar does not give Caesar a carte blanche to do what he likes Jesus does more than balance this statement when he tells him to render to God what is God's now God is Caesar's Lord one may owe Caesar what bears his image in name money one owes to God what bears God's image in name since we are created in the image of God and bear his name as children of God we owe him our whole selves now what is the challenge of this? the challenge of this is that our allegiance ultimately is to the God whose image we bear even though it may be warped by sin each of us bears the image of God yes we have an obligation to the state that we live in if we receive benefit we pay taxes some of us reluctantly some of us more gladly but ultimately our authority is to God and where there is a clash of allegiance as the early apostles said when they were faced up with the Jewish authorities we must obey God rather than men Acts 5 verse 29 the question is do I recognise my allegiance to God you see you look at Europe today and you see the fires of nationalism of ethnic conflict of the terrible ethnic cleansing that's going on in some parts of the world our ultimate allegiance is not to Scotland or England to the UK to Great Britain we have obligations as citizens but ultimately if you're a Christian our citizenship is in heaven that is our ultimate allegiance and so Jesus avoids the trap that is set for him and the crowd we read were amazed at him but the questions aren't finished so let's read on to the next question verse 18 then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question teacher they said Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother now there were seven brothers the first one married and died without leaving any children the second one married the widow but he also died having no child in fact it was the same with the third in fact none of the seven left any children last of all the woman died too at the resurrection whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her Jesus replied are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God 
when the dead rise they will neither marry nor be given in marriage they'll be like the angels in heaven now about the dead rising have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not the God of the dead but of the living you are badly mistaken now this time the question is are another Jewish group who are called the Sadducees the Sadducees were an aristocratic worldly wise wealthy group of people they were mostly from a priestly background almost all the high priests came from a Sadducee background and on the Jewish ruling council like the local government that ruled Judea they had the controlling share they were the largest block of people they were also responsible incidentally for the administration of the temple and all the trade that went on there and no doubt they were none too pleased with what Jesus had just done as we read a week or two ago in overturning the tables and the money changers and driving them out of the temple so their question again is not a genuine question seeking for information it's an attempt to discredit Jesus this question is not so much a trick question this is a ridiculous question the Pharisees relate this story it's a hypothetical story about this man who's married to this woman and he dies and the law of Moses you can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 25 if you're interested verses 5 to 10 under Jewish law what happened was the brother was obliged to marry the widow and the first son that was born would take the first brother's name who had died in order to keep the property within the family and preserve his name it's had a funny name it's called Levirate Marriage After, again it's all this Latin the Latin for brother is Levir and they said there's this story about this man and he died and so his next brother married the widow and he died without any children and then the third one did it and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh they all died without any children so none of them had any precedence which they would have had if they'd had any sons particularly now there's the question at the resurrection whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her now this is not a serious question this is a kind of red herring question you know it's a bit like the question you know people say do you believe in the Bible in the book of Genesis you say yes and they say okay where did Cain get his wife from stupid question I, when people ask me this I always say to them if I can tell you the answer will you become a Christian the answer is no not at all they're not really interested they just think they can ask a daft question to put you off now this is a daft question about resurrection alright the Sadducees theologically they didn't believe really in anything much supernatural they didn't believe in the resurrection they didn't believe in angels and they only thought that the first five books of our Bible which were called the book of Moses that was their only Bible that they really held to be authoritative uh, there may be some political overtones in this as well you see if you believe in life after death and resurrection then you're more likely to lay down your life for a cause as we see with these suicide bombers and martyrs who lay down their lives because they're promised that when they do that they'll just go straight to paradise now Jesus interestingly and sometimes we need to learn this and it takes wisdom sometimes you need to say to people without beating around the bush you're wrong and that's what Jesus does he says are oh, you not in error you're wrong on two counts you're ignorant of the scriptures and you're ignorant of the power of God see the Sadducees had this crude idea that when you died that life after death was like life on earth just the same but Jesus says in the resurrection there will no longer be any procreation or marriage and in this respect alone the people who die and go to heaven will be like the angels 
And then he challenges them on their own grounds. He says, okay, you guys, you only believe in the book of Moses. Okay, what does he say in the book of Moses? What does he say in the story of the bush? They didn't have, of course, chapters and verses there. He couldn't say, what does he say in Exodus 3, verse 6? It's the story of the bush. It says, when God appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He didn't say, I was. He said, I am, hundreds of years later. I'm still their God. I'm the God of the living, not of the dead. And he says, you're badly mistaken. Now, there are many people still around like the Sadducees today. And you may be one of them. You may be religious. You may come along to church. You may kind of admire the Bible in some ways. But when push comes to shove, you don't really believe in a God of power who can raise the dead. People are reduced to scriptures to a merely human level. And in reality, deny God's power. When Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy, uh, he said in the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said in the last days, he said, one of the characteristics of people is that they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power of God. And you can have a veneer of respectability, a veneer of religion. And the challenge arising from this is, do I believe in the resurrection? As the Apostle Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Three times recently, if you've been following this series, Jesus had spoken about his own death and resurrection. Now, take that away from the Christian faith. You lose everything. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are of all people most to be pitied, says Paul. But he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. Now, is it your hope? See, as you get older, as you fall down and do daft things and break your arm and so on, you're reminded of your mortality, aren't you? It's a faith with illness. You think, and it makes you think. When you're younger, you never think about this because anybody older than 20 seems ancient, you know. But <laughs> the older you get, the more you begin to think about mortality. You begin to think about life, but life after death. Now, I want to ask you this morning this is so important. Do you have a hope in the resurrection? It's so fundamental. And the great hope of the Christian faith is that we believe in a God of power who has spoken through his word the scriptures and raises the dead. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. That's our great hope as Christians. Now, is it your hope, your personal hope? Now, let's move on. In the crowd, we need to move. In the crowd, listening to the debate, is a teacher of the law who was no doubt delighted by what Jesus said because he, unlike the Sadducees, did believe in the resurrection of the dead and angels and all the rest. And he had a question as well. So, let's read what he asked. Get on to verse, where are we? Verse... 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
Well said, teacher, the man replied. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, what sort of question is this? I want to suggest to you that unlike the first, which was a trick question, the second, which was a ridiculous question, it is clear from the context that this is a serious question. Of all the commandments, which is the greatest? The teachers of the law, the group to which this man belonged, had studied the law of Moses, analysed it in detail, and worked out that there were 613 different commandments in the law of Moses. And it was a kind of topical popular question to ask which is the greatest of these or can you summarise them all there's a well known story about the famous rubbish, uh, rubbish, Jewish rabbi <laughs> getting excited here could have been worse right there's a famous story about a Jewish rabbi called Hillel, he lived a generation before Jesus and uh, a convert to Judaism or someone who wanted to become a Jew said can you tell me, he said, can you instruct me in the whole law of Moses while I stand on one leg? And Hillel had said, what thou hatest for thyself, do not to thy neighbour. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary. Now the answer Jesus gives is similar in his second part, except it's positive, love your neighbour as yourself. However, he gives priority, not to our relationship with others, but first of all to our relationship with God. And he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, this is is really the Jewish creed, the summary of what Jews believe. It's called the Shema, because the word hear is the word Shema, and Jews call it the Shema. Pious Jews still recite this daily, morning and evening, and if you've ever seen those little boxes that they wear on their foreheads, it's called phylacteries, inside is written this verse. And they also put them on their doorposts on little boxes called mezuzah. And Jesus states this, and then he links it with a second commandment, love your neighbour as yourself, which is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. He says the whole law of God is contained in these two commandments. If you were with us in our series in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with loving God, The second six deal with loving your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus puts these two together as a summary of what God demands of us. And the questioner wholeheartedly approves. He says, teacher, good answer. This is more important than outward religion, than all the sacrifice that goes on in the temple. To love God wholeheartedly and to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, here's the challenge for us. Not just to agree with what Jesus says, but to put it in practice. What is the priority in your life? Do you, do I, love God wholeheartedly? And do I love my neighbour as myself? You remember the famous story in Luke 10 where Jesus was asked by another teacher of the law, who is my neighbour? And Jesus gave a radical answer, told the story of the Good Samaritan, who Jews hated. He said, anyone is your neighbour, not just your fellow Jews, anyone. And it's clear from Mark's account that this questioner is sincere. His question is serious. Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. 
Now again, there are many people like the teacher of the law who admire the teaching of Jesus. They come to church. Maybe you've been coming for a long time. And you're not far from the kingdom of God. But you're not yet in. How then do we enter the kingdom of God? Uh, David Garland again writes helpfully. Listen carefully. The teacher of the law is not far from the kingdom. He is not in. That is, he has not yet freely chosen God's rule for himself. But he doesn't have far to go. To be in the kingdom, one must do more than simply approve of Jesus' teaching. One must submit entirely to his authority in person. Can he make the next step to get into the kingdom and accept Jesus as the son of David and David's Lord? Now, that's the next question that's raised. The people we read ask no more questions, but Jesus now has a question for them. Verse 35, we're getting there, we're nearly towards the end. Verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him, with delight. Now this is a hard question to understand if you're not a Jew, but concentrate, it's an important question. This is a crucial question. Summarised by the NIV heading, whose son is David? Now, it sounds a kind of obscure question to us, but his hearers would have understood it clearly. Let me try and explain it. The teachers of the law, and anyone who knew the Old Testament, knew that one thing about the coming Christ that's the Greek word for the Messiah, the Hebrew word, that the Christ whom God would send, he would trace his descent from King David. That is, he would trace his lineage from David. And there are all sorts of promises in the Old Testament about this. There's a famous one that we read at Christmas, Isaiah 11. The prophet said, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Many other references to the Davidic descent of the Christ. Everyone agreed that the Christ would be David's son. Now, most Jews then thought about this and they thought, there's going to come a great king like David and he will conquer our enemies and drive out the Romans, our oppressors. But Jesus asked them a different question to get them thinking in a different dimension. He says, how can the Christ be David's son when David refers to him as Lord? Now, what he's quoting from there is from Psalm 110. You can see the footnotes in the Bible. Everyone agreed that Psalm 110, if you read this little short psalm, was about the Messiah, and they also agreed that David wrote it. It was one of David's psalms. So he says, David, referring to the Messiah, calls him Lord. How can he be his Lord when he's his son? The answer, of course, is that the Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. And the crucial issue here, the Messiah who is coming, he says, will be both human, born in time, but also divine. God from eternity, Lord of all. And Jesus here is speaking about himself. And what he's saying will only become clear after his own death and resurrection. And the New Testament emphasises these two things. The human nature of Christ descended from David. You can read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke at the beginning of the Gospels. He was the son of David, humanly speaking, but he is also the son of God. You may be interested to know that the, the Old Testament scripture that is most quoted and referred to in the New Testament is Psalm 110. I don't think it's probably most of us our favourite psalm. 26 times it's referred to in the New Testament. 
And if you read that psalm on, it's a wonderful psalm, it speaks about the Messiah who will also be a priest forever to bring people back to God, to reconcile them from God. Now, the question arising from this section, we're moving on really in our development, is this. Do I believe that Jesus is both human and divine? Almost all the theological arguments about Jesus Christ focus in on one of these two issues. Do you believe that he's human and divine? The two hang together, both God and man. And the key to understanding who Jesus is, is the key that unlocks us to the gate of heaven and enables us, like this teacher of the law, to finally enter the kingdom of heaven as we come to see who Jesus is and accept him. And I want to ask you the question, are you not far from the kingdom or are you in the kingdom? Have you acknowledged that Jesus is both God and man? Now let's read the conclusion because we see here two different responses. Almost there. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave, all gave out of their wealth that she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now notice as we come to the conclusion, two contrasting responses to God and to worship. The first we see in the teachers of the law and their worship is superficial worship. They're putting on a show. Jesus constantly called them hypocrites which in Greek meant a person who put on a mask and played a role. They're pretending at being religious. They like to be popular. They wear these long flowing robes with tassels so that everybody will see them and bow as they pass by. If you go to a party or a wedding banquet they get the best seats. In the synagogues they have the place of honour and they do this because they've got their own reward and that's all they're interested in. They're not really serious about following God and worshipping him. In fact, Jesus says more than that. They weren't allowed to earn a salary but they preyed on gullible women, widows and took their money from them. And he said they'll be punished most severely. To ask you this morning, is your worship just putting on a play, a pretense? Oh, you may fool everybody you may be a very good actor in fact the action you're acting may become a reality to you but is it real to you now notice the contrast with the widow this widow woman and here we see not sac- superficial worship we see sacrificial worship we read that in verse 41 that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in and like Charlotte Chapel where we take up an offering in the temple outside the court of the women in the precincts of the temple were placed 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles and people walking past threw their money into these trumpet-shaped receptacles. No, I don't think it's a good idea, but anyway, for us, but anyway, uh, the thing was that most people did this ostentatiously. You imagine this big trumpet-shaped receptacle. If you got a big gold thumping shekel, you could chuck it in and everybody would hear the loud gong and say, wow, what is... And if you chuck 20 and imagine that, shh. 
But this poor widow woman comes along and she has two tiny coins worth only a fraction of a penny. They were actually the minimum offering that was acceptable to God. Uh, you'll see at the footnote they were called lepta. One lepton, two lepta. A bit of Greek as well. And lepta or lepton means thin because they were so thin they were the minimum amount of actual metal that you could use to make a coin. There's some pictures of them. I actually discovered on a website on the internet that you can now buy these coins that have been dug up from the past because there's loads of them around and they described us and I quote perfect gifts for your child, grandchild, parent or favourite clergyman. <laughs> and they only cost $39.95. Isn't that ironical? You want the address, see me afterwards. So, you imagine this widow woman throws in these two little coins and the tinkle that they make. That's just nothing at all, is it? But Jesus saw and heard what she gave. It's just a lovely story, isn't it? A paradox. I tell you the truth, he says. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. William Barclay comments. It is a strange and lovely thing that the person whom the New Testament and Jesus hand down to history as a pattern of generosity was a person who gave a gift of so little value in monetary terms. Is that true? The point is, of course, obvious. It's not the amount you give. It's what it costs you. And for this widow, these two coins were all she had to live on. And she gave it all. Everything. Now, my final question to us today is this. Is my worship, my response to God, is it superficial or sacrificial? Superficial or sacrificial? What's it costing you to be a Christian? Is it everything to you? Or is it just a performance? Play acting? Or am I willing to give all for the sake of Christ who sacrificed everything for me? Conclusion. We began with a denarius. And we conclude with two small lepta. Now, I imagine that very few of us would refuse to pay the taxes that we do when the income tax man sends his bill in or our employer takes it off our wages. We may do it somewhat reluctantly, but we recognise it as an obligation. But I wonder how many of us avoid giving to God what is rightfully his. Not reluctantly, or forcibly, but gladly, cheerfully, giving God our money, our love, and our lives. Is our worship superficial or sacrificial? That's the challenge for us today. And we're going to sing our final hymn. You'll guess what it is, if you know hymns well. It provides an opportunity.